Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending where you're tuning in. Uh, thank you for joining us. My name is David Halperin. I am the Executive Director of Israel Policy Forum. I want to thank you all for joining us uh, for this special webinar conversation. Our gathering today represents an incredibly timely moment to unpack this historic week in Israeli politics. But this gathering also represents the concluding session of Israel Policy Forum's first ever Leadership Policy Summit. I hope you all tuned in to, what, to watch our special community program last night on a realistic reset, restoring U.S. leadership on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where we outlined our policy priorities with regard to Israel's security, U.S.-Palestinian relations, and Israel-Arab normalization, uh, all with the goal of ensuring a two-state horizon and maintaining the vision of a secure Jewish democratic Israel. We heard from the Biden administration, from the former UN Special Envoy, from Israel Policy Forum's team of experts, and from Israeli and Palestinian grassroots activists. If you missed the program last night, you can find a recording of each of the sessions on our website at israelpolicyforum.org. In addition to last night's public program, over the past two days, Israel Policy Forum's leadership has had private engagements with many Israeli, Palestinian, and American officials, analysts, activists, and earlier today, we had the opportunity to meet with numerous members of the House and Senate. I want to thank all of our leadership and supporters for engaging with our work during this incredible week, and to provide special thanks to our staff team, in particular, Aaron Weinberg, Jen Miller, and Gabe Barnett, for their incredible work. And before we begin today to discuss the major news of the week with two of Israel's foremost political analysts, Barack Ravid and Tal Schneider, we're privileged and honored to share the following remarks from the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Robert Menendez. I want to thank the Israel Policy Forum for hosting this conversation and for your consistent principled approach towards Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship. As we settle into our own new presidency, and Israel seems on the cusp of settling into its own new political reality, which at the time of this recording looks like potentially a new government, I believe it's critically important to look forward, but also to remind ourselves of what has always driven the U.S.-Israel relationship. Because the fact is, the U.S.-Israel relationship and security of the Israeli people is much more important than any one person. It transcends faith, party affiliation, and political philosophy. Our relationship is rooted in shared democratic values and a shared interest in promoting peace and stability for Israel, its neighbors, and the whole region in protecting and defending a Jewish and democratic state where all people can live in freedom and dignity. It remains my deepest belief, as I know it does for IPF as well, that Israel's long-term stability and viability is best secured by Israelis and Palestinians negotiating a two-state agreement that provides for the safety, dignity, and peace of all people. I also believe that the United States can and should continue to play a role in helping to facilitate that outcome. However, history has reminded us many times over that we cannot force that ultimate goal. 
And unfortunately, the most recent round of tragic violence has reminded us that however small their faction may be, the actors who actively do not want this outcome are willing to use varying degrees of violence to promote their own agendas and make a sustainable, peaceful outcome all the more difficult. But let me be clear. In the face of a terrorist organization committed to Israel's destruction, willing to indiscriminately attack civilians and put others directly in harm's way, Israel has every right to defend herself and her population. Full stop. As rockets fly and civilians tragically die, we see emotions rise and rancor grow. Political actors across the region, in the United States and even the United Nations, trying to capitalize on a truly dangerous and tragic situation for narrow political gains. So for those of us who truly care about the long-term viability of a Jewish and democratic Israel and a strong U.S.-Israel relationship rooted across the American political spectrum, I believe we need to focus on three overarching elements. First, we must push back against all efforts to use the U.S.-Israel relationship for partisan politics. The very moment Hamas launches a barrage of rockets into Israeli civilian centers, inviting a response they know may impact civilians in Gaza, is not the moment to call for a slowing down of U.S. security assistance to Israel. Halting or conditioning aid is not only illogical, it threatens to put Israeli and Palestinian civilians more at risk. Similarly, calls to withhold assistance to Palestinians that Congress has authorized and appropriated in full compliance with all applicable laws, including the Taylor Force Act, does not do much to advance the cause of peace on the ground and gives us less of an entry point. And on the global stage, we must continue to push back against lopsided and misguided efforts to isolate, undermine, or delegitimize Israel. That means stopping BDS from seeping into completely unrelated conversations. And among all the crises the world faces, including an ongoing global pandemic, we cannot stand silently when international institutions continue to single out Israel. It's ludicrous, offensive, and does nothing to advance peace. Second, we have to continue the hard work of diplomacy, including engaging more productively with Palestinians. The previous administration's cutoff of assistance led to a shutoff of political engagement, but did nothing to address core concerns or empower any Palestinians willing to work for the cause of peace. If we are not at the table, we simply don't have the ability to push for the kinds of reforms I believe we should be encouraging, including ending the martyr payment system and reforms at UNRWA. We should also seek to build on the Abraham Accords and encourage more countries in the region to publicly embrace Israel on the world stage. We should help encourage and foster these relationships to promote a more sustainable peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Because while these new partnerships are unequivocally good, 
Neither the Emiratis nor the Moroccans were previously lobbying rockets into Jerusalem. To be clear, our diplomatic efforts must continue to be grounded in protecting the interests of Israel, the region, and the national security interests of the United States. That is why, even though I applaud the last administration for building on years of quiet diplomacy, I strongly believe these kinds of agreements should not be rewarded with advanced U.S. weapons systems that potentially threaten both Israel's qualitative military edge and U.S. national security interests, unless they meet all the measurements of U.S. national security interests that we establish in considering arms sales. Finally, we must overall continue to be a reliable and honest friend to Israel and do what friends do, stand by them when they are under attack and speak the truth. We must find the nuance. We are capable of doing so, and we owe it to our own values and the values that form the basis of that friendship. So let's be grounded. Our values and interests will continue to drive the ironclad U.S.-Israel relationship. This does not mean that the president should call a high-level peace summit tomorrow. It's become painfully clear over the many decades, indeed centuries, of various iterations of conflict over this land that leadership matters. The United States cannot will peace into existence nor convince any political leader to do more than they are willing or able to do. We can, however, continue to support those voices who drive those foundational values of this relationship. Thanks in part to the advocacy of IPF, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, and other advocates, Congress passed the bipartisan Nita Lowy Middle East Partnership for Peace Act, which as you know, authorizes significant funds to support Israelis and Palestinians who are willing to do the hard work through business, people-to-people -people engagement, and peace building. At this moment, we must find ways to empower those who continue to work towards cooperation and a two-state solution. While the big decisions about the fate of Israelis and Palestinians will be driven by high-profile political acts of courage, the people making those choices will be driven by the people they represent. So now, let us focus on building up those voices who want to work in support of peace, who want to work in support of prosperity, those people who are willing to do the hard work. It is said that he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Let us put our hand to the plow and look forward to the hard work of accomplishing peace with security, prosperity, and a brighter future. And with that in mind, thank you for all your ongoing efforts. Shalom. Thank you uh, so very much. Uh, on behalf of all of us at Israel Policy Forum, I want to thank Senator Menendez for those thoughtful remarks uh, and, of course, for his leadership. And now I want to turn to the really, truly major development this week, the unprecedented agreement to form an expansive coalition government that would unseat Prime Minister Netanyahu after 12 consecutive years in office, 
We are joined now by Barak Ravid of Axios and Tal Schneider of the Times of Israel. We've had the chance to host Barak and Tal many times individually over the years, and we are truly grateful to each of them for joining together for this session during such a momentous week. Uh, where to begin? Wow. Uh, Tal, uh, maybe, maybe you could explain to us, walk us through the last 24 hours of Israel, in Israel. Uh, what's happened? What has been the reaction thus far? Um, we have a group of eight parties that decided to form a, a coalition, and those parties do not inc- include the Likud for, uh, I think, first time in, uh, you know, tens of years. And also they do not include the ultra-Orthodox party. This actually happened twice in the last 10 years. But uh, again, the fact that the Likud is not part of the next government, this is truly a breaking news. It happened on Wednesday night, I think 24 hours uh, ago, in a hotel in Ramat Gan, a place called the uh, Maccabi village or Kfara Maccabiya. Um, all of the all of the representative of the parties were sitting uh, there negotiating. They actually started negotiating a month ago, but then the negotiations stopped because of the escalation uh, in Gaza. And in the last uh, week or so, they went back to the to the negotiation table. And uh, I have to tell you, we were very skeptic until the last minute because there were so many difficulties and so many problems. We're talking about right-wing faction of Yamina, religious, uh, uh, you know, Naftali Bennett, who is the chair, is a religious Zionist. And then Labour, Meretz, uh, Blue and White, uh, Israel Beitenu, and uh, another right-wing party called New Hope, uh, chaired by uh, Gidon Starr. And the most maybe um, amazing news, a faction called Ram, the Islamic movement, chaired by Mansour Abbas, entered this coalition, signed on the agreement around 11 p.m. last night. We got a photo of Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid, and Mansour Abbas signing an agreement. This is unprecedented. I think the only time an Arab party sat in a coalition was uh, around 68 years ago. And even back then, it's not the same because um, this time around, we are talking about the Islamic movement. Um, and uh, that's about it. I mean, uh, Amansur Abbas is not going to be a, a, a minister in this government, but he is taking a full part, a full member of uh, the coalition and uh, quite uh, incredible news. I'll have only one uh, sentence. Only two and a half weeks ago, this country was torn apart by mobs of of Jewish and Arabs who were attacking each other on the streets. And there was an escalation in Gaza, rockets all over the country, you know, severe violence inside the country. And here we are, you know, very short time later on, and people from Jewish and Arab communities of, of this country are coming together and signing in, in this disagreement. So, you know... Quite an historic event. Yeah, Brock, I want to turn to you, but I want to also just remind uh, everyone in the audience that if you would like to ask a question, you could do so in the Q&A at the bottom uh, of of your screen, and we can try to get to as many questions in the time that we have uh, with Barack until today. Barack, this is not yet a done deal. It is an agreement in principle. What has to happen between now and when the swearing in of this Knesset uh, uh, or the, the vote of confidence in this new government uh, what do you expect in the interim, uh, and uh, when will we know that it is a, a done deal? Well, what needs to happen in order for uh, this government to be sworn in 
is that um, at least uh, all of uh, Bennett's uh, uh, party members, all the other five party members, will be taken into a bunker underground for the next <laughs> 10 days. Uh, that the doors will be shut, all the phones will be thrown out, and in 10 days they will go out and be driven to the Knesset just right before they need to vote on, on the government. This is the only way that you can actually uh, make sure that this government will really be sworn in. And because this is not a possible scenario, it means that uh, there are quite a lot of chances that uh, this new government will not make it to, uh, to its uh, swearing-in ceremony. Uh, I, um, yesterday I was, um, uh, I went on CNN, I said I give it 30% that this government will be sworn in. Today I went up to 35%. Uh, let's see uh, where we get to uh, in the next uh, few days. It is still, uh, at least to me, it still looks pretty far away when you have to understand it's not, it's, it really depends on one person to cave to this enormous pressure and threats uh, and death threats uh, against those people by Netanyahu and his supporters. Uh, you know, demonstrations in front of their houses and, and it's not like, uh, you know, uh, a peaceful protest of people just, you know, standing outside with, uh, um, you know, with flags and signs. It's, uh, you know, uh, very uh, uh, loud uh, uh, protests with um, very uh, threatening uh, uh, slogans being uh, um, thrown around, uh, especially with signs that you see the same signs in all the protests, signs that say uh, treacherous lefties. Um, and... Um, I think we will just see that increase in the coming days. Uh, just to make you understand how Netanyahu, how much Netanyahu is involved in the efforts to sabotage this government, um, there is this backbencher from Naftali Bennett's party, a guy called Nir Orbach, that until this morning, uh, people who are not Tal Schneider and other people who are very involved in Israeli politics didn't even have a clue that the guy existed. Uh, but all of a sudden, when his finger was needed for the vote, he became this uh, strategic asset for everybody. And his rabbi, uh, a guy called uh, Yosef Shana, uh, went on television today and basically hinted that Netanyahu called him and asked him to press this member of Knesset, Nir Orbach, to vote against the government. Okay. Naftali Bennett today met with Orbach for three hours. Uh, it was, there was one more person in the meeting, and this was Orbach's wife. And the reason she was there is because she was also under pressure. Um, and there are many stories like that with other members of Bennett's uh, uh, party. Um, uh, Gidon Saar and his party are also under a lot of pressure. They're in a bit different mode, but uh, I think that Netanyahu also thinks that he has potential there to try and, you know, get one uh, or two of their people. 
so there, we still have something like between a week and 10 days to the swearing-in vote. In Israel, this is eternity. So I think uh, I wouldn't, uh, if I'm Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, I wouldn't uh, pop the champagnes just yet. I want to ask, um, you know, you're talking about the idea of defectors preventing uh, this government from getting to 61. There was some talk that there might be some votes from the Arab joint list that hasn't joined this government that might actually vote in favor. Uh, maybe, Tal, you could unpack. Is What is the position currently of the Arab joint list uh, with regard to supporting or not this new government? I believe it's split. Is that still the case? And is there somewhat of an insurance policy against the near Orbach? not voting in favor. So uh, as Barack said, uh, Yamina is in a problem, but uh, we don't know uh, what's going to be the final vote on their side. I hope uh, at least six of them will join uh, Naftali Bennett, their leader. As per the joint list, uh, the joint list is very complicated. It consists of three different uh, factions. Um, two of those factions actually already said they're going to vote against the government. And another faction consisting of two members did not decide yet, but may abstain. This is Ahmed Tibi uh, faction. But from the, 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 the news today was not with respect to the swearing in of the government, but with respect to the change or the um, election of a new speaker of the Knesset. Now, the outgoing speaker of the Knesset, Yariv Levin, a very loyalist uh, politician to Netanyahu, he is serving as a speaker of the Knesset, but actually he acts more as a, you know, Likudnik uh, politician, more than a speaker of the Knesset. You know, the Knesset is the Knesset of the entire Israeli people. What he's been doing, he's, he's trying to stall the procedure on behalf of the prime minister instead of acting as a speaker of the legislative uh, body, uh, and, and if the legislative body has a new uh, majority, then he needs to get this, uh, you know, done as a way of uh, peaceful power, uh, peaceful transfer of powers. Right? Instead of that, he probably is trying to stall the procedure and lengthen the timing between the announcement of the coalition agreement, which was last night until the time the government was swearing. Now, why does he want to do it? He wants to have as much as uh, demonstrations and as much pressure as can be uh, put on the people of Yamina. So what happened today is that some of the Arab politicians came out and say, we will vote with the new um, coalition to, um, to um, you know, um, change the, to elect a new speaker of the Knesset. They were willing to support that, but uh, Israel politics is so complicated. And uh, some of the right-wing parties said, okay, we rather wait another couple of more days for the change of the Speaker of the Knesset and not vote with the joint Arab list. So again, this is an example where I think some of the Arab uh, party leaders have you know, been trying to uh, engage and, and play by the rules with the rest of the Jewish society and they get rejected. And uh, so for now, we don't know when is going to be the um, the vote for the new, for the election of the new Speaker of the Knesset, probably in seven to 10 days from now. I, if I can just add just one sentence about that, about the joint list, this is, you know, this is pretty amazing 
a phenomena what is going on maybe you, you might want to talk about it more uh, later but the fact that you know the the Arab joint list basically said today if our votes are needed we will vote in favor of the government and they were uh, rejected by the people who want to form to swear in the government which is pretty amazing can you imagine for example in the US um, You know, again, I'm, I'm no offense to anybody from the, the, the comparison that I'm, that I'm making. Um, uh, and I know that U.S. politics is not really similar to Israeli politics, but still, can you imagine um, Nancy Pelosi telling uh, Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib, oh, you know what, we, we don't want your vote uh, uh, this way, you know, just, just you know, don't, don't, vote for, don't vote with us. Okay, we would rather, you know, push a vote in a few weeks just so that you're not going to vote with us. This is something that will never happen in America, obviously, not only because it's totally racist to do it, but just because it's bad politics. And the fact that still uh, uh, racism in Israel uh, among uh, uh, some politicians is still stronger than their own Uh, uh, political survival, uh, uh, the need for their political survival is pretty amazing. Yes, and, and yet we have Ra'am now part of the coalition. So what, what's, the, what, what's the difference here? The difference is that, you know, in Israel for many, many years, uh, you know, there's an evolution. First, again, first, it's a very positive thing. And again, to imagine that three weeks after we had the worst intercommunal violence between Jews and Arabs in this country since October 2000, okay? Three weeks later, we will have an Arab minister in the government, Isawi Fred from, uh, from, the, from Meretz, and we will have uh, a, an Arab party voting in favor of the government and being part of the coalition. This is really amazing. Okay, this is an amazing thing, and it shows you that at the end of the day, the, the trajectory is very positive, and that regardless of the racist campaigns led by Netanyahu since 2015 until today, the, at the end of the day, the Israeli society, or big parts of it, the majority of it, rejected this racism. Okay, it doesn't mean that we are in a good place, there is a lot of work to do. But the fact is that Mansour Abbas and the Ram Islamist Party is going to be part of the coalition. Why are they in and the joint list are, are out? Because uh, um, Mansour Abbas decided that he's willing to put aside some of his positions, okay, in order to get uh, something else for uh, his constituents. Okay, and he decided, okay, I'm going to put all the, let's say, more the foreign policy, uh, security, identity politics, all of that I'm going to put aside, okay? And I'm going to focus on economy, uh, social issues, uh, um, uh, rule of law, fighting crime, all of those issues, getting budgets for my constituents. And he decided to do that. It got him a lot of Uh, uh, support in the public, also in the Jewish public. It made him very uh, popular among uh, Jews in Israel. 
It also got him a lot of criticism from within his party, from within the uh, Arab uh, society uh, in Israel, the Arab minority, but it created something new. And um, if you if you want to if you want to add to talk more about it later, I also have a, th- a theory of why it happened and how it co- it's connected to Donald Trump. <laughs> Okay, I don't. I don't know how you can leave us hanging with that. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I, I, before we continue, I, have, I already have a lot of questions that have come in. But Barack, it sounds like you're the pessimist. You're saying a 35 percent chance that this thing actually reaches the finish line. Tal, I want to know uh, what your percent is that this is actually going to happen. Oh my God! If you were asking me two years ago, will the world sit in the social distancing in the houses and not see each other for months, I would say you're crazy. And then if you would ask me, how about Israel would be in a war with Gaza and then riots on the streets and then immediately thereafter, all of those people will come together and and form a government without Netanyahu. I would tell you, you are a crazy person. So don't expect me to make any predictions. Israel (laughs) politics is so. wild i mean what i mean we've been through in this month with the you know with the escalation i mean we had i mean rockets in this in this house i mean not in the, on this house obviously but in this area i mean barack and myself we were running to the shelters with the kids uh, i mean and i don't even want to start to talk about what was going on in the southern part of the of the country so and all of this just happened uh what weeks ago Really, I mean, we are old enough to remember. <laughs> I can't really predict uh, anything, uh, you know, even not uh, even not for tomorrow. This is just too crazy. Yeah, I, I have uh, a lot of uh, questions um, that that I want to get to uh, about Bennett and about different members of of, of this potential coalition. But I want to go back to this uncertain moment. And um, I just saw a question from a Gavin Kornblum, and it sort of encapsulates a lot of questions, right? Which is, what will Netanyahu do now? Uh, and I think you mentioned, Barack, the campaign against calling rabbis uh, to try to, to, to upset this potential government. Um, what happens if, if, if this does reach the finish line? What does it mean for Netanyahu in the, in the near term, if not long term? And if this does not reach the finish line, does it immediately mean a, a, a yet another election? Are there, is there another outcome? Maybe I'll, I'll ask Barack for that one. Yeah. I, I don't see how, let's say this government collapses and doesn't reach the finish line. I don't see uh, how anybody else can form a government. Seems impossible to me. I think we'll go for a fifth election. Uh, and in this election, by the way, Many people on the right, many uh, think that if there is a fifth election, the center left will win big time. I don't think so, but this is because, you know, I'm a, I'm a Polk Falsaba fan. You know, we, we are used to losing all the time. Uh, that's a football team in Israel. Uh, so, you know, uh, but, but people on the right in Israel believe that if there is a fifth election, the center left will win big. Uh, about Netanyahu, I think that uh, we cannot uh, rule out the possibility that we will have here uh, our own version of January 6th. Uh, I think this is a real threat. Uh, you see the violence in uh, the violent rhetoric. You see the death threats. You see uh, um, 
the demonstrations. You see, uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, Tal gets those every day. I get those, those and we're not going to be the, the people who need to vote in favor of this government. So think that if we get those death threats, think about what happens to Naftali Bennett and Ayelet Shaked and others who are going to vote. Uh, so I think we are in a very, very, very dangerous moment. And, uh, uh, you know, the possibility in the current atmosphere, the, the possibility of uh, um, political uh, motivated, politically motivated violence is something that is a real threat. And uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out at all. Uh, in any case, if this government is sworn in, uh, Netanyahu is not going to go anywhere. He's going to stay the uh, leader of uh, uh, opposition and try to, uh, um, you know, to challenge this government from the opposition. But if he's the head of opposition, you will see another process uh, um, uh, catching a lot of momentum. And this is Netanyahu's trial. Because when Netanyahu is the prime minister, there are, you know, he has the ability to slow down his trial or, you know, not to go to every session, not to go to every hearing. Uh, but I think that once uh, he's not the prime minister, this thing will, uh, will catch some more momentum. And I think he will find himself uh, spending much more time in the courtroom than he does right now. Tal, did you want to add something or? I just, I'm guessing that Netanyahu will conduct primaries for the top of the Likud very, very quick to embolden his uh, status. Uh, probably within weeks, I mean, maybe two weeks, he will just, uh, you know, snap elections, try to squash all of his opponents uh, inside the Likud, and uh, will, and from the outskirts, he will do everything in his power to topple this government, meaning lots of demonstrations on the streets. Lots of violence, I suppose, and uh, any any trick in the book to to get them, you know, to get in between them, to ruin it for them, so they can, you know, um, topple and 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 he will able to run as the savior back again. That's you know that's the plan, I suppose. I think he's already conducting his campaign for the fifth election. He started to do it, you know, the day after his mandate expired a month ago. So. Let's let's assume for a moment that uh, the scenario happens. We have a new government. It is it is sworn in. Um, many many questions that have come in are basically boil down to: so what could they actually do? Uh, what could this actually this government that spans from the Islamic movement all the way to the right wing annexation promoting Naftali Bennett? What could it actually uh, accomplish? Uh, not just on the Palestinian issue or what does it mean for the Palestinian issue, but what does it mean for Israel, for, for Jewish Arab relations we've touched on, for religion and state, for passing a budget? Uh, do we think that basic things could be accomplished with this, with this kind of uh, uh, government? First and foremost, they will pass the budget. If they don't do it, it's, there is no justification for them. They will have to pass the budget. We, the last time a budget was passed here in Israel was March 2018. This is two and a half years without a budget. They will have to pass a biannual budget. So that means that politically they can stick to, together until, the, until December of 2022 because they will not need to pass a budget for this year and the next year 
And if that is the case, they will be able to survive politically. But then with the budget, this is a whole, you know, uh, basket of, of legislation. Budget is not just the budget. It's about, you know, um, you know payments and, and you know, getting the economy back on its feet, getting the healthcare system uh, fixed. You know, we have lots of problems with unemployment, you know, small businesses, healthcare system, education system. So, so many things need to be fixed after those years of, of actually no, no reform money. And then on top of everything, you need to have, you know, Bedouin villages um, infrastructure, a new Arab, they're talking about a new Arab uh, city. Israel never had an Arab city built ever in the country's history. So a new Arab city, Bedouin villages, infrastructure for the northern villages, you know, education system for the Arab society. And the main, the main issue for the Arab society is fighting the violence in their streets. If those things will, will start to be, you know, attended, then, you know, a lot of civil issues, uh, things that have nothing to do with the Palestinians or the Iranian threat. Uh, I think a lot of, like, like the United States, right after COVID, where your president said he needs to deal with, you know, inner, internal American issue first. This is the same case here. We have so many things to mend and fix after this uh, year of Corona and after all of those years of Netanyahu, you know, inciting uh, against some communities in Israel. Yeah, I, I just want to point out, of course, I don't think the Biden administration was 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 eager to deeply engage in this particular issue until we had the conflict of two weeks ago. And so, you know, if there would be a flare up between Israelis and, and Palestinians, I, I wonder if this government uh, could even could survive it. Um, Barack, I'm curious what you think are the potential, you know, uh, speed bumps along the road, the, the roadblocks that would prevent or keep uh, such a coalition together or split it apart? Well, first, I think that uh, uh, one of the things this uh, government would do, and it, I think it would be pretty easy to do, is that it would just... Um, uh, take the remote, this big remote control of the country, and press mute. Okay, and I'm sure that this is, uh, you all witnessed that a few months ago, uh, that somebody just writes, press mute. And all of a sudden, the day was much more quiet and calm for everybody, just because somebody pressed mute. And I think that uh, uh, this is something that we will see here uh, too. And um, this is uh, even that, just for that, it is, we need a new, a new government, just for somebody to press mute. Uh, on the, on, look, on, on foreign policy, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, uh, uh, look, it's this government, uh, I think it is clear to everybody uh, and, and by the way, it's also clear when you look at the situation in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, the Palestinians just postponed their elections. Again, um, there, there, there's deep divide within the Palestinian uh, political system, the Palestinian society. Uh, I don't think that anybody in, with, with, in, with a clear mind thinks that there is any uh, point at relaunching uh, uh, peace talks, okay? So when you think about it, this is the main, this is the main stumbling block, block. I mean, and, and because nobody thinks that 
it's a goal, then the the, the you know the big stumbling block is just out of the way. Uh, the main issue, in my opinion, will be uh, settlements uh, because um, Naftali Bennett's uh, base, if he still has a base uh, somewhere, uh, is people who support uh, uh, settlements. Um, and uh, this government, in a way, would have, would have had a much harder time if, let's say, Donald Trump would still be the president of the United States and just say, you know, whatever, build, you know, whatever you want. Uh, but because it's Joe Biden, uh, just for you to understand, since Biden assumed office, I, I think that there were no new uh, building units approved in the West Bank settlements since January 20th. Um, so, um, and this wasn't with uh, the Lapid Bennett government. This was with the Netanyahu government. Uh, and I just think that this thing will continue. And um, Bennett said it today, he hinted, that you know he needs to there will be a need to manage the differences with the Biden administration i think that the main challenge for the Biden administration and the israeli government will be to find some sort of an understanding to get some sort of a deal on how do we basically put the um uh two states how we freeze the situation put like they say about the iran deal right put the Iranian nuclear uh, program in a box. So how do we put the two-state solution in a box? So that, you know, we freeze the situation, we don't take it forward, but we we don't make it things worse. Uh, and I think that some deal will be have to be worked out uh, about that. So one other issue we haven't really touched on is the, uh, we've had a number of questions about as well, is the issue of religion and state. Um, because of course, if this coalition does reach the finish line and we and and does, it's without the ultra orthodox parties, what does that mean for these issues of religion and state? Um, both sort of the the allocations to the orth, uh, ultra orthodox sector, things like uh, uh, the the draft law. Um, uh, do you guys see that as a, as a as a area of real possible change? Uh, I would say they have to uh, put forward some bills with respect to draft and conversion because the Supreme Court is waiting in the corner. You have a deadline there. So uh, the draft uh, bill was already formulated uh, two years ago before uh, the latest, uh, you know, before the first uh, election round. And uh, some of the ultra-Orthodox parties already signed up on some of the changes. So I suppose you know they will have to they will have to um you know pass that uh bill um they may find it problematic because I have a feeling that the Islamic movement will not participate in this legislation uh, you know Arab parties usually do not participate in any legislation that has to do with military issues mm-hmm. as per conversion uh the same goes they have to come up with some formulation because there is a Supreme Court uh, waiting around the corner. I think conversion is actually very interesting for you know the our audience uh, you know Jewish people in uh, around the the world and this is a, a point of uh, of conflict with the ultra orthodox parties but you know you you can't avoid any of that uh, and uh, I think some people from this um, change block the right wing parties 
Yamina, headed by Naftali Bennett and uh, the designated justice minister, uh, Gideon Saar, they want to make sure the ultra-Orthodox are not upset because they are potential political powers in the future. So they will try to ease things with them. And actually, some of the some of the of the ultra orthodox, specifically Gafni, Moshe Gafni uh, faction, they are not. Uh, Moshe Gafni at the moment is not fully cooperating with Netanyahu. He's kind of um, angered with him. Uh, today, I think Netanyahu was trying to gather the, those leaders, ultra orthodox and others, in his chambers to uh, get. This, they call it the loyalty block uh, to get some, you know, um, decision made together. And actually, Moshe Gafni refused to go, refused to participate. It doesn't mean that he's jumping on the change block, but he's definitely not happy with the situation where he's so aligned with Netanyahu. So I think, you know, the ultra-Orthodox will probably do some, maybe they will do some soul searching and will try to think, you know, what went wrong for them. Hopefully. Yeah, not so all of them. What's the significance, Aaron Miller actually wrote in, what's the biggest significance of having no religious parties in the government, uh, given that it's only happened a handful of times? Um, is there any real, uh, do we expect any real change because of that? I think that the main change we might see will be about the, you know, allowances to uh, um, to the yeshivas and something that I'm sure that Avigdor Lieberman is Minister of Finance and as the one who controls the um, the Knesset Finance uh, uh, Committee, I hmm. think this will be a main target for him. And and by the way, it's something that uh, you know must be done because uh, you know we need to get the ultra orthodox into the um, into the jobs market in, uh, because right now. Uh, there is this. Uh, there is the trend of in in the in the because of the recent years when the ultra orthodox that Netanyahu was totally dependent on the ultra orthodox for his political uh, uh, survival. Uh, many um, uh, of the policies that were intended to get them into the work uh, market uh, were rolled back. Uh, and allowances grew more and more and more. We saw and we saw those phenomena during the uh, COVID year. We saw this phenomena during the you know the stampede at, at Mount Meron. I think that one of the decisions that this government will take very very quickly is to form a committee of inquiry uh, about the Mount Meron uh, stampede, and this committee. Uh, will not only deal with, okay, who was responsible for the fact that the people were told to go from this route and not that route, or it will deal more broadly with the whole issue of the ultra-Orthodox autonomy in Israel uh, and with uh, how the the heads of the uh, ultra-Orthodox parties were Minister of Interior uh, Arya Deri, and uh, other uh, ultra-Orthodox officials who were deeply involved behind the scenes in what's going on in Mount Meron. Uh, And I think that this will have a lot of influence on the ultra-Orthodox society. Um, We've seen in the last elections how there were quite quite significant changes in how ultra-Orthodox voted in the last election. The turnout was a bit lower 
some ultra-Orthodox voters voted for non-ultra-Orthodox parties. Uh, and I think, you know, if, and now there, there were, were reports that Arya Deri will uh, resign and will leave politics, which will be a huge shift in Shas. Um, you know, Yaakov Litzman uh, is going to be indicted. Uh, so there will also be um, uh, uh, a change there. And, you know, we had the year of COVID. We had the Mount Moron uh, 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 tragedy. The ultra-Orthodox society is going to go through a very, very big shift, in my opinion. And, and together with the fact that they're not in the government, uh, I think that very positive things can come out of it. So uh, our board chair, Susie Goman, is not accepting, Tal, your, your refusal to um, predict the future. Um, <laughs> so she wants to, she's writing in asking, saying that Barack's giving it a 35% chance of being realized. What's Tal's assessment of how long a government might last if it is informed? Now, you just said if there's a budget, it lasts at least to December 2022. But let's maybe get you on record, Tal. How long does the government last? Barack is is very brave. He always has been. I know him for many years. He's (laughs) brave. And I'm I'm, I'm chicken. I, you know, I'm not good in in predicting. Uh, But... uh, (laughs) Uh, really, uh, it's it's really very tough call. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I'm I'm having a hard time. I mean, yesterday I was standing there in the hotel, and people kept asking me, "Is it done? Is it coming? Are they finalizing things?" And I was like, "Oh my God, we don't know because it all seemed." You know, once Mansoura bus arrived at the grounds, and uh, there is a little story here if you want to listen for a minute. All of the Israeli politicians were hiding from the press. We were standing in the lobby and most of the politicians entered from a back door and up to the fifth floor. The only person to come up and run through the media all the way up and then when he went down, that was Mansoura Abbas. Now he went up and he wanted, he wanted the media to, to escort him and ask him questions. He went up and, and, and then when he went down, it went again through the media in order to be asked and questions. And, and you know, he knew it was uh, aired live. And then I said to myself, okay, this is, I mean, this is done because if he's doing this show, you know, it's done. Also, it's, it's also a good, um, you know, opportunity to mention that this guy is very media savvy. So he loves the media and he's really good at it. I mean, he, you know, in order to climb into Israel's, you know, hearts, he is doing media um, media event after media event in the last couple of I don't know months or a little bit more little more little little bit more than that, and he's uh, fascinating the way he's handling uh, you know the the Hebrew media. It's just uh, fascinating to see that. So yesterday he came down and he was like, okay, I mean, like he has this nonchalant you know attitude. Okay, I'll I'll answer some questions. And then I said to myself, this is it. Then a um, few minutes later, we got this photo where you've seen Naftali Bennett, Yair Lapid, and Mansoura Abbas sitting and signing the document. And that was an exciting moment, I have to tell you, because again, uh, it felt like history in the making, really. I mean, we have never seen anything like that with respect to the Arab minority. So that's very, very important part of, of the whole story. To my opinion, even if everything collapses, if, if nothing is working from now on, the fact that they sat with him in front of the cameras 
And the fact that the Israeli public is so exposed to the Arab interests, to the Arab, you know, minority needs and so on, it's an achievement by, by you know, anyways. So, I mean, it's an achievement for future generations and for future campaigns, actually. Right. Yeah, you know, yesterday, yesterday in, in the, all the political panels on television, uh, people debated what the Shura Council of Ram Islamist Party is going to do. Okay, which was really like uh, a surreal uh, <laughs> moment that, you know, this is what they're discussing on television. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. There's so many stories and angles to just the last 24 hours. Barack, I wonder if you could, what, what, are the, what do you think are the stories that are being overlooked? Or the, what, what are the questions that you have heading into the next week that you think should be getting more attention? What do you think is the story that, that we're not actually seeing that, that you think should should uh, get get more of the spotlight in this in this remarkable 36 hours or so. I gotta tell you something. There's one question I, that I ask myself a lot, and I, I, you know, if if I interviewed Netanyahu right now, I know what I would ask him because this is the most I this is the most intriguing part to me is that I would ask him if there's a new government, are you going to continue on? Are you going to stay in Israel? Mm. That's, that that would be my question. Is he going to stay in Israel? Uh, so obviously, uh, in in the immediate term, he's going to stay the head of opposition. But on the on the long term, you know, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, and I think it will be very interesting to see, um, you know, what happens with him in the day after. Look, I mean, this is, uh, you know, think about it. In Israel, people who are 30 years old, okay, never voted in an election that Netanyahu, that did not end up with Netanyahu being the prime minister, okay? Uh, There are people who are, and everybody who's younger than that doesn't even know how the country looks like without Netanyahu, okay? Among the reporters that cover uh, uh, the prime minister's office today, I am the only person who covered another prime minister who is not Netanyahu. Okay? As a, as, as a reporter who covers the prime minister's office. Okay? So for the country itself, I think that it, it would be, um, you know, a real, you know, a real shock And this is, I think, what is interesting to me, what, how the country is going to look like the day after. What are all those people that were part of the Netanyahu world, okay? What is going to happen to them the day after? All the people who incited, all the people who were Netanyahu's cronies in different ministries, okay? That he put them there as his own apparatchiks, in order to have control or to know what was going on in those ministries, okay? And that they were working for him even though the ministers were from another party, okay? So what is going to happen to all those people, all those people who lived off, you know, uh, uh, budgets that he funneled to them? Barat, what is those, going people, to those people actually sign on loyalty Papers. I mean, they. I'm not, they, no, I'm not talking about members of Knesset. Obviously, those people. No, the, the ministers. No, no. Of course, I'm not talking about them. What's going to happen to all of his mouthpieces? Okay, 
in the Israeli press, people who were on the fringes and, 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 and that they were you know, taken from the fringes and installed by Netanyahu in the mainstream media in order to corrupt the mainstream media and disrupt it. Okay, so to me, that's the most interesting thing. What is going to happen to all those people in the day after? Hal, what's your overlooked story? My overlooked story? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, um, Meretz and Labour, two parties that haven't been in power for so many years, working their way into this government, uh, made a lot of concessions, a lot of compromise in order to be part of it. I, until last night, I mean, Merav Michaeli made a huge compromise uh, in order to satisfy Ayelet Chaked, the future interior minister. Michaeli wanted to be, she wanted to be education minister. Then the right wing told her, forget about it, that this is ideological uh, ministry. We are holding, I mean, the right wing who has only 13 seats or, you know, uh, not it's not the biggest part of this government. They said no, no, you're not you're not going to get the education ministry. Then she said, okay, I want the interior ministry. But then Ayelet Chaked, number two to Naftali Bennett, said, I am getting the interior ministry or I'm out. Then she wanted. She, then she was signed to be uh, a member of the judicial panel who chooses judges. And then Ayelet Chaked came in and said. I'm either getting this uh, title or I'm not joining and so on and so forth. And you see, you do see merits and labor. You know, they want to be so much in the, in this game. They are, you know, willing to let go for on so many issues. I mean, you know, there was in the last 24 hours, we realized that the bylaws of this government not, not going to mention the LGBT issue. It doesn't mean that this government will not deal with LGBT issue. It just means that it's not, you know, prescribed in, in, the, in the documents. And, I mean, imagine that. I mean, they have, I think, with all of those um, parties, they have at least, I mean, one chairman of a party who is gay, Nitzan Orvitz from Neretz, another minister from Blue and White who is gay, and other members who are LGBT community members or, you know, um, alternative families uh, members, and they are all waving on this specific issue. And you won't guess why. They are doing it because Ram, the Islamic movement, doesn't agree to discuss these issues in public. So it's not even done for the right-wing, uh, right, you know, right-wing conservative people. It's done for the Arabs. And I mean, those stories, I mean, it's not like they weren't overlooked, but definitely we were, you know, so busy with the, the thing itself. Uh, I think labor and merits were taken for uh, granted uh, in the process. Well, we've reached the top of the hour, but um, and I, I want to thank everyone, but I, I, I must hold one last question. Um, if Barack, you have another minute, because uh, the question uh, and answer section here is being flooded with the cliffhanger of what's the connection between Ra'am and Trump. But before, <laughs> before you answer that question, I do want to just thank everyone for, for joining. Remind you all that there is a recording uh, of this conversation that will appear as an episode of our podcast, Israel Policy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts or our website, israelpolicyforum.org. And at that website, if you go to israelpolicyforum.org support, 
uh, you can make a contribution in support of our work and uh, educational resources programs like these and our website. You could find information about our policy priorities as well. And of course, we encourage your continued engagement and support of the work uh, of our work, especially at critical moments of change like we're experiencing now. Barack, what in the world is the connection between Ram and Trump? Well, I know that I, I know that I guess that most of the people who are watching us right now are not uh, avid Trump fans, uh, but uh, and they might not like what I'm going to say. But um, you know, Trump had a huge achievement during his presidency, and this world, and, and I'm talking about the Abraham Accords. Uh, I think that this is the uh, uh, most important breakthrough in the in the uh, Middle East peace process in the last 25. Uh, years, it dramatically changed uh, the region, okay? And it didn't only dramatically change the region, it dramatically changed Israel. Because it did two things. First, it didn't only normalize relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan. It also normalized the way Israeli Jews look at Arabs. And, uh, you know, last Hanukkah, 130,000 Israelis went to Dubai, okay? And when they went to Dubai, they were uh, uh, um, doing their vacation in an Arab city, listening to Arabic all day around them eating Arabic food, uh, hearing people speak Arabic, listening to Arabic music, okay? In Israel, when people walk in the street and hear Arabic, some of them, you know, freak out. But here, 130,000 Israelis, okay, that at least, I guess, big part of them vote for the right, went there and as a vacation. So it, I think it changed the perception for many Israelis. It softened the, the way Israelis look, Israeli Jews look at Arabs in general. So this also influenced the way they look at Arabs in Israel, Arab citizens of Israel. This is first. Second, the, Arab, the joint Arab list voted, all of its members voted against the peace treaty with the UAE when it came to a vote in the Knesset. Okay. This was one of the biggest mistakes the Arab Joint List did. And the reason for it is that their voters liked the Abraham Accords and liked the peace treaty with the UAE because it connected them. It gave them a, a connection to their culture, to, uh, um, uh, to another Arab country, to more economic opportunities, uh, to more, uh, um, you know, being more integrated into the region, um, and they were not in sync with the voters. And I think that this also was created tension within the uh, joint list, uh, and, and I think that Mansour Abbas realized it, that they were not in sync with their, with their voters. And I think that the, this, the Abraham Accords were one of the things that got the Arab joint list to divide and that uh, made Mansour Abbas to go on a different path. So those two developments out of the Abraham Accords 
got us, I think, again, this is not the only reason, but I think it had a lot of influence of getting us to where we are today. So at the beginning, by the way, the Abraham Accords saved Netanyahu, okay? But uh, at the end, I think the Abraham Accords also created this political atmosphere that got him to where he is today. Wow. Well, Tal and Barak, thank you for staying up late. Uh, what a momentous week. I uh, hope you get some sleep at some point, probably not this week or next. <laughs> but one of these days, I hope you guys uh, get some sleep. Uh, but really appreciate your, your taking time uh, to be with us. And I want to thank everyone again for joining us, not only for today's webinar, but last night, Tuesday, and all, uh, all throughout the week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us for your engagement and support and look forward to connecting with you all soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.